This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open his door, run down to cell one, and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, Kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome, folks, to a very special Stool Pigeon Saturday. Today we have Matt Connolly, the lead park ranger at Alcatraz Island, the Division of Interpretation and Education. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. We also have Sky down in Texas. Hi, everyone. And Sam is here, but on the chat. So we will be voicing for Sam. He says hi. <laughs> so, Matt, thank you for uh, taking time out of your, your extremely busy schedule to talk about Alcatraz. We've referenced it throughout the season, you know, starting with Gordon Raymond May and this last week with the episode of uh, William Denard and... You know, we want to hear more about his his uh, companion, his partner in crime, Mr. Harmon Whaley. But first, I want to I want to know more about you and uh, a little bit about your background and how you started working at Alcatraz. Yeah, so as um, you said, I'm Matt Connolly. I am one of the lead park rangers on Alcatraz Island, which is a part of Golden Gate National Recreation Area been working for the Park Service now for about 10 years, thereabouts, kind of came in as an intern um, all the way back in 2012. Um, one of the first places that I actually um, worked as an intern was at Alcatraz Island. I grew up in the Bay Area, um, wanted to stay close to family and friends at the time, and there happened to be an internship. And I said, this seems interesting. Why not? So didn't know a ton about Alcatraz prior to that. Came out there, really just found the history fascinating, found the nature of the island fascinating. There's just so much more there on Alcatraz and in its history than folks really see at first glance. After that internship, that led me to my first uniform position with the National Park Service, um, which was at Cape Hatteras National Seashore, and bounced around all over the service um, from park to park, season to season, for about six, seven years before landing permanently back out here on Alcatraz, right around, I guess it was 2020 thereabouts. So I've been out on the island now for coming up on four years. Like I said, one of the lead park rangers out there. And um, yeah, it's a blast. It's an amazing place to work every day. It's not a bad office. Yeah, absolutely. Can you kind of walk us through what a day-to-day looks like for you? Yeah, so I mean, as most folks imagine know, Alcatraz is an island. We basically head out on the ferry right before the visitors arrive every morning, more or less get there, hop on the boat at 820. Um, it's fun because it was workplace, you know, you walk in 10 minutes late to work many places, you're just 10 minutes late. But if you miss that boat by even 30 seconds, you're already 20 minutes late. So day starts with the boat ride. We head out, we figure out our schedules for the day, um, see who's open and what, what, who has what duties, um, sort things out on that boat ride. Get to the island right around 845 and visitors are fast on our heels about 20 minutes later. Rangers basically are stationed at the dock greeting every single boat 
about 300, 350 visitors every 30 minutes when we're sold out. And we're basically in an orientation, talking about programs that are happening for the day, talking about different exhibits and areas of the island that are open, um, all the various kind of things that are on offer. Once folks have gotten that orientation, they head off with maybe a ranger giving a program. I get some of those programs myself. We potentially, you know, go from giving a program, which could be anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes, just to usually a walking tour or a stationary talk, open up one of the different buildings that we staff, come down for another shift at the docks, take lunch somewhere in there, uh, maybe have a little bit of time back in the office to do some research, dive deeper into the stacks. And yeah, just basically rinse and repeat. And then usually, you know, maybe another tour at the end of the day. And before you know it, it is 6.30, 10 hours have somehow flown by and we're catching the boat home. Wow. Yeah, that's that sounds like quite the day. Uh, have you ever tried to swim the channel? <laughs> I have not yet myself. One of my former colleagues definitely has. It's on my list to potentially do at some point, but, you know, need to do quite a bit of training, I imagine, first. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely not be in shape for that. How many visitors a year do you receive? You said like 300 people arrive per boat. Yeah, every 30 minutes. So it's about 6,000 a day at peak in our high season. And I think um, last year we had about 1.1, 1.2 million, somewhere around that for the whole year. I think we peaked prior to the pandemic at around 1.3 was our you know record. Just We haven't quite got back to those pre-pandemic numbers, but on track for it. That's that's an incredible number, right? We we receive about 72,000 per year. So million, like even yeah. 500,000, I would be uh, aghast, but wow. Oh my gosh. Uh, did you happen to have any sort of Halloween specific thing that a lot of us other historic prison sites do? Yeah. So for the National Park Service, Halloween is just like a day like any other you know, so folks come out in costumes, things of that nature, but we don't host any specific special events for that. Um, the one ongoing series of special events that we have on the island, which is usually at this point one Saturday a month, we have a um, formerly incarcerated speaker series. So we work with a um, formerly incarcerated individuals. They come out to the island. They talk about their history of being incarcerated. They talk about kind of their experiences, both on the inside and adjusting to life as they um, are returning citizens. And, you know, speak to that um, in front of whatever visitors happen to kind of come in and join in and really trying to kind of contemporize the experience that so many men had, both of incarceration and um, their post-incarceration life, which I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about with Harmon's story. Do you have any other types of events that are pretty regular? That is really one of the main ones that we have ongoing currently. At various points over the years, we've had various art exhibits out here. We have various kind of, you know, temporary exhibits that are coming through the island at all different times and places. One of the more recent ones that we had was the um, Red Power exhibit, which was retrospective, focused on the 19-month um, occupation when Native Americans basically took over Alcatraz as a form of political protest after the prison closed down. We had a speaker series lined up with that, again, usually happening about once a month that we'd have a speaker come out and speak to, you know, both the history around the occupation. And we had several panels and panelists come out and talk about that, but also just contemporary Indigenous issues, Indigenous, you know, um, sovereignty and just other things that are ongoing today. We had a small film showing and just kind of looking at that larger arc of the Red Power movement that exists to this day that in many ways has its roots on that original Alcatraz occupation. I would love to work with you some more on that. We we had some residents here who who went to California and actually joined in it. And we did an interview with a fellow named Chris Zavala who participated. And, you know, he was about 80 years old when he came and did our one of our captivating conversations, kind of a similar concept of 
people talking about their incarceration experience. And I would love to do a cross collaboration on something like that. That's such a fascinating story. It's definitely one of my favorites on the island. Yeah. Alcatraz. What does that word mean? Where does that come from? Just as like a foundation. Yeah. So to the best of our understanding, the word goes all the way back to the original Spanish arrival in, you know, California, Alta California. The Spanish basically have various expeditions coming up through inland California, coming up through the coast, actually heading quite far north. But it took them until 1775 until they really actually located the San Francisco Bay um, and actually came into the bay itself. Because of where the hills sit behind it um, and the fog that often is in this area, apparently they sailed past it numerous times. Um, first, European explorer kind of sails into the bay that we know of. Juan Manuel de Ayala sails in 1775 and like so many Europeans before him, presumes that he discovered it and starts naming everything. Um, one of the islands in the San Francisco Bay was named Isla de los Alcatraces, which translates to Isle of the Pelicans or Isle of the Seabirds. Potentially even goes back to you know Arabic influences on Spanish, like Alcatraz being um, Arabic for sea eagle. It's tough to know the full etymology of it. There's a variety of different theories out there. That island on the map, if you look back at the old original maps, probably not Alcatraz. But as folks transcribed and copied maps over the years, the name migrated and landed on the rock today that we call Alcatraz. It was Alcatraces for many years. Even the original, I guess, lintel above the fort says, you know, Alcatraces Island. But at some point, I guess the Americans just had a tough time saying Alcatraces and it got anglicized. I don't know exactly when that is and when that shift happens, but it basically gets anglicized from Alcatraces to Alcatraz and the rest is history. I mean, you know, Hollywood and other folks take it and run with it. And, you know, now it's the world over renowned. Yeah. Famous, infamous federal penitentiary prison. So we, we've talked about the dis Spanish discovery. Were, were there uses by indigenous? We have very few references and a lot mm -hmm. of them come secondhand. So they come, you know, not from the indigenous people, not from necessarily from their oral histories, but from early explorers. And even from like, I heard this from someone who heard this from someone who heard this from someone from the early explorers, you know, so a lot of the early use of the island is largely speculative. Best that I can say is that there was, you know, over 400 village sites on the waters of the San Francisco Bay. It was an incredibly lush and dense area of indigenous inhabitants. The Native Americans, Coast Miwok, the Ohlone peoples who lived in the San Francisco Bay area were there for 10,000 years, if not 20,000 years, depending on which way you look at it from the anthropological record. So they were there this island had birds, it had bird guano, it had bird eggs. More than likely as they're traveling the waters of the bay on Tule Reed boats, they would have used this as navigational aid. They would have stopped over, potentially gave bird eggs there, or hunted the birds themselves, or potentially hunted seals from the shores. There would have been no habitation on the island because it was a barren rock. There's no fresh water. You know, it's not a great place to live, but if you need a place to stop on your canoe journey, it's a great place. If you need a place to grab bird eggs, if you need a place to hunt wildlife, like all those things would have well suited it. There is some talk in the early Spanish days or even the Russian days of various folks being marooned out there. But again, nothing that I've been able to trace back fully, like where it has a strong lineage in the oral histories that, you know, it's a lot of it so secondhand where I'm like, I'm not sure if this is purely apocryphal or actually based in the history of the people who were here. Spanish arrived, like I said, in 1775. They start giving out land grants. Somebody is granted Alcatraz Island. Those land grants change hands a few times. Eventually, Mexico secedes from Spain. They give out some land grants. Again, who owns Alcatraz changes a few times. There's various talks. A family, the workman family was talking about putting a lighthouse out there. Nothing ever really happens on the island. Bear Flag Revolt happens. 
California basically revolts under Mexican rule, becomes part of the United States. And shortly after that revolt, gold's discovered. And with the discovery of gold, all the folks on the East Coast back on Capitol Hill suddenly care a lot more about this far-flung part of the now United States, and they want to defend it. So they throw money at the problem, they send the Army Corps of Engineers out here, and they tell them to defend the San Francisco Bay, because they don't want that gold to basically be taken away from them. They don't want the gold fields to be lost. And keep in mind, this is land that's changed, what, three times in the previous, you know, 50 years, (laughs) 75 years. So they don't want to see it change hands again. And um, the Army Corps of Engineers begins building forts on the West Coast. And one of the biggest brick fortifications, I guess you'd say the biggest brick fortification built west of the Mississippi, constructions began on Alcatraz pretty much in the 1850s. Eventually, it grows to become 110 cannons on the island, 110 guns that ringed Alcatraz as a coastal defense fortress. It becomes the site of the first lighthouse lit on the West Coast, big aids navigation to basically help with all those ships that are bringing men to go work in those gold fields that are bringing gold out to the rest of the world and so on and so forth. So that huge boom in shipping, they need, you know, navigational aids and it becomes site of the first lighthouse. So pretty much in the 1850s, you got a lighthouse keeper, all of his crew, his family, and a artillery company and a bunch of Army Corps of Engineers out on the island. It doesn't have a long heyday as a fortress because the era of brick forts and smooth-barreled cannons kind of is on the decline with the destruction of Fort Sumter, Civil War. You know, they start moving to earthenwork batteries, smooth-barreled, should we say, rifle-barreled artillery. And Alcatraz tries to adapt, but with the increased range, coastal defense really moves out to the coast and out of the harbor, out of the bay. So they need to find another use for Alcatraz. And as they're building this fortress, the Army Corps of Engineers basically starts putting men who've broken military law to work, men who have broken the Army's rules, and they are sentenced to hard labor, forfeiting all their pay, basically saving taxpayer dollars. They build Fortress Alcatraz, and through that building process, they realize this is a great place to incarcerate men and put them to work. So it pretty much transitions very early on into a military prison. It's officially designated one in 1907, Military Disciplinary Barracks of the Pacific Branch of the United States Army, and um, the military run it until 1933 of which it turns into the Bureau of Prisons. They take over basically a pre-built military prison island to open up the first maximum security, super maximum security prison of its kind. Operates as United States Penitentiary Alcatraz all the way from 34 until 63. From 34 until 63, it closes down in 63 when the Bureau of Prisons and the Department of Justice realize the same thing that the military did 34 years earlier, which is an island prison that's incredibly expensive to run. Um, It just cost a lot of money, all the upkeep, all the maintenance, bringing things to and from by boat. And the fact that the buildings were, you know, at this point, many of them 50, 60, 70 years old, they were all built by the military. They weren't up to code. A lot of improvements were needed. And looking at the cost of operating it, they decided ultimately to shut it down because they could build the exact same high security prison on the mainland and operate it for much cheaper. Shuts down in 63. And there's a big question of what happens to Alcatraz next. They turn to the government. They're like, who wants it? Who wants a pre-built military prison island? You know, well-used, low cost. No one wants to foot the bill. GSA takes over, has a single caretaker out here. And it quickly, you know, becomes this kind of political football where folks are discussing what to do with Alcatraz. Ideas flood in. There's like a West Coast Statue of Liberty concept. There is um, ideas for, you know, a monument to the United Nations, monument to the Space Age, all sorts of concepts come in. You know, a Texas oil baron wants to buy it and turn it into a casino and a resort. And ultimately, a lot of these ideas are what leads to that occupation that I mentioned earlier. Um, the indigenous occupation, basically, they come out here um, and take over Alcatraz because they see this as a pre-built island housing power plant, you know, rough shape, but like actual land the government owns. And the government 
isn't using it. The government, which has dispossessed them from so much land that they had, literally has so much that they could just watch this island with all these structures and all this infrastructure just you know, rot into the bay or sell it to the highest bidder. So they basically come out to the island. They take it over um, in several occupations. The first ones are they basically leave before anything happens. But in the one that happens in 1969, November of 1969, they come out and they end up staying pretty much overnight. They're removed from the island. They come back a second time and settle in for what ends up being a 19-month occupation. They're out here for 19 months. It's the longest occupation of federal land to date. They wanted to get the island turned into a university and a cultural center. They're not successful in that goal. But they do really kick off this larger red power movement, which you know still exists to this day, this movement for sovereignty, self-determination. Many different pieces of legislation are passed through the halls of Congress following the occupation itself ending. And in a lot of ways, the occupation puts a stop to the plans to develop the island, a stop to the plans to sell it to the highest bidder, um, interrupts all of that, which allows the government to actually, you know, more or less was already planning on putting a national park in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the tension the occupation brought to the island, as well as delaying those that sale of it to the highest bidder, in this case, Lamar Hunt, allows it to become part of the National Park Service today. We opened as a national park in 1972. First ranger tours began in October of 1973, which I'm pleased to say right now, we have now been giving ranger tours on Alcatraz for a total of 50 years, longer than we were a federal penitentiary. Congratulations. That's quite the achievement right there. Yeah. Wow. What a history. Thank you. So 34 to to 63, it is a federal prison. Who would be housed there? It's an island. You know, it's such a dangerous sea around it. Who would be housed there? One of the really important things when I think about talking about Alcatraz is that It's men who committed federal crimes. You know, you guys operate a state prison. Many, many crimes, many violations of the law fall under county state jurisdiction. It's very few that actually fall under federal. So first off, like a lot of folks think about murderers. And I'm like, most murderers end up in state custody. The vast majority. To end up in federal custody, you have to either murder a federal officer or commit a murder in a federal territory. So Robert Stroud commits a murder in Alaska before it's a state, which is what lands him in federal custody because there's no state prison system. Alaska is then just a territory. That's how he gets to federal custody. Generally speaking, it's folks who've committed federal crimes. Could be anything from tax evasion to robbing a post office to various narcotics violations, kidnapping and crossing state lines, taking a motor vehicle across state lines after you've stolen a motor vehicle, a lot of interstate commerce violations, train robbery, bank robbery, things of that nature. Now that initially gets you into the federal system. It does not yet necessarily get you to Alcatraz. To get to Alcatraz, you have to basically break the prison rules. So it's like break the rules of society, you end up in prison, break the prison rules, you end up on Alcatraz. The men who were sent out here were deemed to be incorrigible or irredeemable. They were basically the troublemakers in the Bureau of Prisons system. And the idea was if you took all of the incorrigible men, the men who had no hope of redemption, and you remove them from the rest of the prison system, it allowed all the other federal prisons to be much more... Um, successful in terms of rehabilitating men. And it was a very progressive era for the federal prisons, and they wanted to rehabilitate folks. And the idea was, if we can take all these bad apples out of the other prisons and stick them on this island, everyone else is better off. But it's not a very good place to be for the men who are stuck on Alcatraz, as we'll chat about. You were kind of talking about water. What did they do for water? It came out by boat. Um, So pretty much they had a water barge that ran out to the island, brought water from San Francisco uh, multiple times a day. It's really interesting. The military, out of all the places in the Bay Area, and they were you know, all over the place in the Bay Area. They had stuff over in the East Bay, um, out in San Francisco, in the North Bay, pretty much on every single shore of the Bay. There's military installations, bases, naval bases. They're like, you know what? We need a laundry facility that's 
you know, central to all of this. So they stick the laundry facility on the military prison in Alcatraz Island, which is central to everything, which is great, but it's also the one place with no fresh water. So brilliant government thinking, sticking the laundry facility there. And the Bureau of Prisons continued to operate that laundry facility um, when the military pulled out. It was kind of one of the agreements that you keep running our laundry facility. So that operated all the way up through the World War II years, which, you know, San Francisco is one of the biggest ports of embarkation for all those soldiers heading out to fight in the Pacific theater. So, you know, they had a 40,000 gallon water tower built in 1941, just to basically keep running that laundry facility. Yeah. It's incredible. That's not to mention, you know, drinking water. I mean, they flush toilets with salt water. They use salt water for what they could for, you know, some non-potable and things like that, but Mm -hmm. you know, they still had to bring out lots of fresh water, cooking, showering, laundry, all these things you can't really use salt water for. That makes so much sense. How many men were usually on the island that they had to provide fresh water for? When this was a military prison, the capacity was upwards of 600 men. And that's just the soldiers incarcerated there. Um, In terms of guards and other staff, I mean, you're probably talking at least a thousand people, if not more. Um, Probably somewhat similar numbers, maybe a little bit smaller in the federal penitentiary year, they dropped the capacity of men to about 330 just because to higher security. And they maintained a one guard to roughly three men incarcerated ratio. So you figure 100, you know, 380 men, let's say, and maybe 100 guards on staff, not all of them would be working the exact same time. Probably another, I don't know, a couple hundred folks in terms of just the families, the guards, civilian employees of the island, the lighthouse keeper, his family, assistant lighthouse keeper, their families. So in both cases, I would say anywhere from 600 to 1,000 people living on the island or at least on the island on a given day. Some of them, you know, maybe it's coming out for a shift because they live in the city, but the vast majority were living out here. How do you keep that many people busy? Like what, what is a daily routine for, for that many people? <laughs> um, so, I mean, it really depended on the individual. For the kids, the kids of the guards, they would basically get up like children everywhere they would basically put on their clothes. They would head down to a dock with a guard and a guard tower watching over them and men incarcerated basically being told to step against the wall and stay there while the kids loaded up on their school boat and they would basically head off to school. You know, they would have their normal school day. They'd come back on a boat at the very end of the day. Um, and again, similar thing where there'd be some incarcerated men working on the dock that would be told to, you know, step back to the wall while the kids and the families basically come back from, you know, the city. It was basically small town America for a lot of the wives and children who lived out here. It had that very small town feel. For the guards, their day would basically start depending on their shift, you know, early morning or potentially late evening if they're working like a night shift. They would basically, you know, head up into the admin wing, potentially take a meal. It was often cheaper apparently to take their meals in the prison than it was to have meals at home um, because they were incredibly low cost all the way through the prison's operation. Um, so they had their own separate dining room. They ate the food off the main line, which apparently was some of the best in the beer of prison system. So they'd take their meal. They'd probably head off to their shift, be issued guns, keys, whatever they needed for the day, and head off to a long stint in the towers or a long stint on the walls or potentially in the cell house itself or potentially overseeing the industries. So, you know, there were a lot of different duties that the men did, or even they could just be working in the admin wing and just like reading letters all day and doing a lot of censorship. It could be any one of those things. For the men incarcerated, they had an incredibly regimented schedule. Pretty much they were up, I want to say it was right around 7 a.m. That number moves a little bit over the years, depending on which warden's in charge. There's always like, it's basically get up, there's a count, you come around, give you a razor blade, you shave, they come back, collect the razor blade. There's another count, you head off to breakfast, you come back from breakfast, there's a count, you head off if you have the privileges to work, you know, another count down there, midway through the workday, you come back up. You know, for lunch, back in your cells, there's a count. After lunch, head back down to work, work another four-hour shift, another count, 
come back for dinner, more counts back in the cells. And you have like a little bit of time in the evening before lights out where you can do what you want to do. So it's like, you know, some men would paint, some men would write, some men would work on legal briefs, you know, be hit in the stacks of the law library. Um, a lot of men read, they were quite avid readers, um, men reading over a hundred books a year. Um, some men played instruments and kind of, they just kept themselves busy until lights out and then lights out and rinse and repeat on um, holidays and Occasionally Saturdays, they get to see movies that they were all behaved enough. They had religious services on Sundays, a bit of yard time on the weekend as well. Your day would look a little bit different if your duties were, let's say, not in the industries, but actually in the kitchen, because your times would be coming of work before meals. You know, you get a shower on, I think, like one day a week for the main folks, a little bit more than that if you were on the kitchen duty. You know, so it kind of varied depending on what your work duties were, but basically every single day involved a lot of counts, a lot of accounting for people, a lot of moving regimented fashions from one place to another and just not a lot of freedom of movement or freedom of you know where you're going who you spend time with so on and so forth even in the early years barely any freedom to speak in all honesty um they maintained a strict rule of silence in the early federal penitentiary years for once it was about four or five years initial four or five years so with all this strict oversight on everybody um, were there areas that were dangerous that they just could not protect folks or the areas that were most dangerous were the Recreation yard and the dining hall. Basically, anytime there was men congregating, the prison staff, like prison staff so many places, saw those as potential problem areas, and they put in a lot of work to account for that. The yard had numerous guards, no firearms on them, but basically carrying saps, clubs, basically walking the yard itself, and then numerous men with high-powered rifles and firearms on the walls overseeing everything um, the dining hall had a catwalk with guards with guns on the outside of the windows, literally like, you know, feet away from the tables that you're sitting at. And overhead, they had installed a um, tear gas system that basically could be released upon push of a button. Never had to be used, to my knowledge, but that was kind of the thing that hung over any sort of issues in the dining hall. Yeah. And a total loss of, of any of your freedoms to yeah, work on was, um, and pain. Maximum security, minimum privileges. Yeah. Was there also a solitary confinement for people who were breaking rules? Yeah. So um, solitary confinement and, you know, segregated um, segregation basically existed from all the way back into the military era, but definitely during the Bureau of Prisons era. Um, initially, they used some of the early military years kind of cells as solitary confinement and segregation, but those were in the main cell house. And they quickly used an older kind of basement layer that was dated back all the way to that original military fort era as solitary confinement and isolation. Um, what were called the dungeons in the military years got rebranded as lower solitary during the Bureau of Prisons years. Um, and men were sent down there for up to 19 days in the dark on a bread and water diet in these cells. Eventually, public opinion and kind of the public became aware of this use of this in court cases like um, Murder in the First, the whole that movie and the court case it entails kind of brought to light a lot of the use of the dungeons, things like that. And public pressure really convinced the Bureau of Prisons to shut down these dungeons. But they basically built a new um, solitary confinement isolation block in D block in 1941, and that basically replaced it. And it's interesting thinking about solitary confinement isolation um, because the man we're talking about today, Harmon, actually spent probably more time in solitary confinement and isolation than just about anyone else at Alcatraz. Well, let's get into Harmon. Can you 
You know, last week uh, I focused on William Tenard, his, his partner, and uh, referenced his relationship with Harmon. But I feel like you would know more about Harmon's story and what happens after his incarceration, which you told me was one of the longest at Alcatraz. Can you kind of talk about what yeah. led him there and what his time was like? Yeah. So Harmon Whaley and William Denard, both young men, both growing up really in a tough time in the country midst of the Great Depression. You know, things were far from easy. They both have rough upbringings, not the easiest time coming up. And as I'm sure you have mentioned last week, um, they end up, you know, quickly on the wrong side of the law, end up at Idaho State. You know, these two men basically form a friendship. And upon being released from Idaho State, they both went their separate ways, but they kind of reconnected, you know, right in the early 1930s. And, you know, Great Depression is really in full swing. Economics, you know, countries in a huge depression, it's really hard to get by. And it's especially hard to get by as someone with a record. Hard to get a job, hard to put food on the table. And Harmon Whaley and William Denard see that some folks are doing fine by themselves amidst this. As much as there's economic hardship to the country as a whole, they see some folks looking through some windows of houses, like the lights are still on, there's still plenty of food on the table, and they're like, what do they got that we don't? And um, they decide to basically rob from the rich and give to the poor, um, and in this case, particularly themselves. They basically see the Weyerhaeuser family, um, huge lumber interest in the Pacific Northwest. They um, stake out their house. They're trying to figure out a way to kind of get some of that money. And ultimately, the plan that they hatch is to kidnap one of the Weyerhaeuser's kids. They watch these kids go to and from school for several weeks. They kind of see them going, brother and sister. And eventually, one day, they catch nine-year-old George Weyerhaeuser, separated from his siblings on the way to and from school. Um, they kind of broken their normal pattern. And they pull up alongside him in a car, grab him, and basically take off. Um, they've kidnapped young George Weyerhaeuser, nine years of age. Harmon Whaley, his girlfriend at the time, as well as William Daynard, basically take George all the way out to the eastern portions of the state and eventually even actually, I think, cross state lines into Idaho briefly at various points. They basically leave him in the woods, chained up, hidden in a shack, and ultimately send a ransom note um, to the family. They're requesting $200,000 in cash. The FBI basically gets really involved in this case because of the prominence of the family and the Lindbergh laws. This really is hit the media circuit really quick. This is one of the first big, like, nationally covered kidnappings following the kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh. It's on every single paper, front page news across the Pacific Northwest. And honestly, it's being picked up by the Associated Press, and it's pretty much across the whole nation. So the FBI quickly gets involved. The family goes through with paying the ransom. They do pay the $200 in cash, but because the FBI is involved, it ends up being in marked bills. George Weyerhaeuser basically is released by Whaley and Daynard. They basically drop him off in eastern Washington, leave him in a shack, kind of tell the family where he's at so he can be picked up. Ultimately, George leaves that shack, starts just kind of wandering down the road, and eventually is found by a good Samaritan local farmer in his, I think, Model T pickup. And he picks him up, and he's like, who are you? And he hears the boy's name, and he's like, oh, I know, you're on the papers. And this man decides to, you know, give young George Weyerhaeuser a ride back across the state, you know, just... Says so like, we're going on a road trip, kid. So they're heading off basically back to the family. They stop at a payphone, I guess, to call ahead. The press is in like a media frenzy over this whole story. And the press catch wind that George Weyerhaeuser has been released is being transported back. And one of the reporters basically catches a taxi and pretty much heads in route kind of to where this truck is coming from. And he gets the taxi to basically flag down this truck he stops the truck, goes and talks to the man. He tells the man who's giving George Weyerhaeuser a ride that he is a police officer and that he'll take him the rest of the way. And then he proceeds to take custody of this nine-year-old, take him to the back of the taxi, 
and bring him back to his family. So effectively, George Weyerhaeuser is kidnapped twice, in my opinion, second time by the press, because this reporter wanted the scoop on this news story. And he basically gets the exclusive interview that every other reporter wanted, which breaks, I think, on the front page. I think it was the Seattle Times the next day before anyone else could interview him. Still does bring the kid back to his family, but, you know, um, I don't really think that's ethical journalism in any way, shape or form. George Weyerhaeuser is delivered back to his family. Whaley, Daynard, and Whaley's girlfriend all make off with the bills and, um, you know, hit the road. And as they begin to spend the money, those marked bills are traced and tracked by the FBI. They eventually do catch up with them, initially with Whaley's girlfriend, eventually with Whaley, who is, you know, has an alias by this point. And in, I believe it's like the year to follow with Daynard, he's the one who stays kind of on the run the longest. Whaley, basically, upon being arrested, is quickly lands, basically is found guilty, um, receives a very lengthy sentence, and lands at McNeil Island, um, right in Seattle. Um, This is still close to his family, still close to where he grows up. His mother is still able to come to visit him. But it's actually less than, you know, four weeks later, 26 days to be exact, that he's actually put in for a transfer to Alcatraz. Looking at his administrative record, he didn't do anything that egregious in those 26 days to earn this transfer. Many men break rules. They attempt to escape. They do something that deems them to be incorrigible or troublemaker. There is a handful of men who seem to almost be directly committed to Alcatraz. And that's that we can tell, just like Capone, for example, Whaley is sent here for more political reasons. You know, he's such a high profile criminal that the Department of Justice wants to show that they are taking this seriously. So they transfer him to their harshest prison. And he is transferred down to Alcatraz, um, arrives there in 1935. And pretty quickly, his behavior there um, really just takes a turn for the worse. My theory is that, you know, lacking the stabilizing influence of his mother, the visitation, you know, she couldn't afford to come down to San Francisco and see him. You know, he really, so many letters that he writes, so many of the things that he talks about, talks about wanting to get back home, talks about wanting to be transferred off Alcatraz, feels that he does not deserve to be there, um, feels that he's been, you know, singled out by the Department of Justice and that he's being treated unfairly. And he engages in every single means of resistance and protest within the prison walls, save escape. That's the one thing that he's an attempt to do. But over the next 22 years he spends on Alcatraz, he basically lands in solitary confinement or in disciplinary segregation, twice for fights with other prisoners, three times for participating in a strike, six times for refusing to work or obey an order, five times for destroying government property, seven times for creating disturbances in the cell house or D-block, 11 times for insolence or cursing or threatening officers, and numerous other infractions such as attempting to attack an officer, possession of contraband, and violating mail regulations. Ultimately, out of the 22 years that he spends on Alcatraz, um, which is the longest sentence out of any of the 1,500 men, over 1,500 men who came through the walls of the federal penitentiary, um, longest consecutive sentence, he, in terms of the longest overall sentence, he's slightly beat out by um, Alvin Karpus of the Karpus Barker gang. He was here for 27 years, but there's a slight break, and he basically comes back a second time with a slight break in there. So depending on how you count, Karpus was here longer. Harmon Whaley was here for a longer consecutive stay. But out of the 22 years he spends out here, he spends seven of those 22 years in disciplinary segregation or in solitary confinement. Pretty much the longest stint out of here. And it's really interesting to me kind of thinking about this individual because so often the men on Alcatraz are deemed to be the so-called worst of the worst. You know, the Bureau of Prison System saw them as the troublemakers of already a criminal element that landed in their prisons. And if you think of these men as the worst of the worst, which we can talk a little bit about, that's kind of one of those things that I want to break down a little bit misunderstandings later. But if you think about that label and you look at Harmon's record, he is the worst of the so-called worst. And it's so interesting to me kind of thinking about this because so many folks are like, folks were here on Alcatraz for life sentence. They were here locked up forever. They are never going to come back in. But the vast majority of men on Alcatraz were released. They came back into society. 
you know? And you even think looking at Harmon's record that like, okay, so he gets back out and of course he'd break the rules again. But as he ages, he comes in as a young man, 25 years of age is when he's originally incarcerated. By the time they were old in the 1950s, he's gone from a 25-year-old in 1935 now to a 40-year-old. And starting in the 1950s, we start to see his behavior improve. He starts spending less time in disciplinary segregation, starts breaking less rules. Um, I think he spends his last stint in solitary confinement in 1953. And his behavior really improves dramatically from that point onward. He starts actually going to work, starts holding down a job, starts earning industrial good time off his sentence. And as he kind of earns these days back, he's quickly approaching parole. And he finally is eligible for parole from Alcatraz in 1957. The parole board basically says, like, this man has been here for 22 years, given kind of the behavior in his sentence, given the length that he's been here, given the improvement, you know, we think that it's finally time for him to go to a lower security facility. He earns that parole. He makes his way back to McNeil Island. He's able to have his mother visit him a handful of times before she passes away, and he's actually able to attend um, her funeral. Um, he basically is given temporary release to actually go to her funeral. Um, he ultimately doesn't parole from McNeil until 1963. At this point, his mother's passed. And he's paroled basically now at 53 years of age, having spent over half his life behind bars. Um, although he was originally from the Northwest, they parole him out, you know, not to Seattle or to Washington, but rather to Portland over fears that he would actually attack the gentleman who was running the, I guess, care home or the elderly home that his mother basically passed at upon seeing her at her funeral. He basically did not like her appearance and felt that she did not receive adequate care at this home and, you know, said some threatening things about that man. So they basically paroled him to Portland. So he basically ends up a free man on the outside, or at least on parole, 53 years of age, half his life behind bars. Wow. And do you know what kind of work he was doing and did he stay yeah. out of trouble or... So what happens next is um, in Portland, gets a job at the Teamsters Union. You know, the union there is many unions actually have a long history of working with folks who are incarcerated, even some unionizing of folks who are behind prison walls and gets a job with them. They give them a chance, works for them, basically driving some trucks, operating some vehicles, taking some of the skills that he actually had learned at McNeil Island. He was actually working in a truck up there and some vehicles up in the island itself before he paroled out and um, puts those to work. Spends about a year there working for the Teamsters Union. When he suddenly actually basically leaves Portland and heads north and basically not even really given notice to his parole officer, just takes off back up to Seattle. And it's interesting, you know, you see this, you're like, oh man, Harmon's going to break the rules again. He's not talking to his parole officer. He's heading back north. You know, he made these threats. What's going to happen next? And he actually goes to a place of business up in the sound of Seattle, basically heads in, talks to the secretary there and says, I want to see the man upstairs. And she says, I'm here about a job. I'm looking for a job. The man upstairs said I can get a job. So you tell him that Harmon Metzwaley is here to see him. She calls up to her boss. He comes down, shakes Harmon's hands, and proceeds to offer a job on the spot. And that man was George Weyerhauser, the same nine-year-old that he had kidnapped, you know, over 30 years earlier, you know, is the one person who gives him a job on the outside. You can imagine, like, even with the work at the Teamsters Union, how hard it would be to get a job in the 1960s with the name Harmon Metzwaley with this kind of like many folks don't know the name today but I mean this was like he was the Al Capone of his day he was the you know he was that large of a figure um, even 30 years on folks were when he's released they were like Harmon Whaley you know Weyerhaeuser kidnapper goes free the papers were all over the place so folks were very much aware of who he was what he did even that late many years later and 
you know, many folks, I'm sure, would not have given a second chance. The media frenzy upon his release, you know, the coverage of it was still very much vitriolic towards him. And it's this very young boy that he kidnapped all those years earlier that is willing to give him a second chance. George Weyerhaeuser ultimately actually advocated for his parole, talked with his parole officers about how he had felt that he had served his time, advocated for him to be released. Harmon had kind of started corresponding with him, seeking forgiveness kind of in the later years of his incarceration. Weyerhaeuser recalls really specifically, and he kind of relates this in various interviews over the years, that out of all the kidnappers, it was Whaley who treated him the kindest. He recalls his father talking about the fact that if it was not for the Great Depression, that these two young boys, Daynard and Whaley, I mean, what, 25 years of age, these young men, would never have kidnapped him in the first place. You know, he remembers this. And even as a nine-year-old boy, of having this conversation with his father over the years, and he ultimately, you know, found it within himself to offer this man a job, to give him a second chance. It's really interesting. You know, one of the things that he says in an interview, George Weyerhaeuser says that his motto, his personal motto is trust your hopes and not your fears. And it's so interesting, you know, maybe that came from the Rudin's kidnapping experience, but the idea of trusting your hopes and not your fears and giving a second chance to someone who's incarcerated, someone with a record, um, just speaks so much volume to it. Ultimately, I don't know that Weyerhaeuser and Whaley became fast friends. Um, I don't know that they had even that close of a relationship. They talk about themselves as like, he's a nice guy. I liked him well enough. There's always some hedging in terms of every interview. Neither one of them spoke like it came up when folks talked to them over the years, but neither one of them spoke that frankly about it. Whaley talks about how even after he left the job and went on to other employment opportunities, now with a you know record of stable employment, moved on to other things, he would still stop back into town and you know stop in for a cup of tea with the Weyerhaeuser family. And it's just so interesting to me, kind of thinking about this, you know, thinking about the nature of justice, thinking about who gets to decide what justice is in society, and is justice something that is decided by the purview of the law and about you know, mandatory sentencing regulations is something that should be decided by a jury is justice something that should be decided by the victims. You know, more and more prisons are looking at things like restorative justice, trying to bring victims into that conversation, trying to kind of center their wants and needs in it. And in a lot of ways, when many folks wouldn't give someone a second chance, George Weyerhaeuser, the very much the victim of Harmon's crime, was the one who really did give him a second chance and helped him get back on his feet after his period of um, incarceration. What an arc of redemption, and that's such an incredible story. Man. Yeah, like, I have actual, like, when you told that story, I got actual chills. Like, that is, you know, these, these are the stories that I think we love to tell on the podcast, and so it's so great to have you on and, and explain that these stories, you know, obviously aren't just at the, the state level, that they happen in these larger, uh, these larger narratives. Thank you so much. That's an amazing story. I did have one thought. Um, at the beginning, his his girlfriend, was she ever charged? She was charged. It's really interesting. One of the troubles that Harmon Whaley had behind bars, and again, this is largely speculative. So various other men incarcerated in their memoirs and even some of the guards speculate on this. And I'm still not clear if this was actual justification, but he was treated pretty poorly. At one point, one of the doctors claims that he is the loneliest man on the rock and that the rest of the men incarcerated out there don't really like him. And the theory that this doctor posits is that Harmon Whaley basically got both a bad rap as a kidnapper. You know, it was one of the crimes that was largely frowned upon amidst the various gangsters and other folks who were there. It was seen as like a less honorable crime. And additionally, he also basically got snubbed by the rest of the community or the rest of the men incarcerated there because he basically turned on his girlfriend. He let her be incarcerated as well. You know, didn't basically take the rap for her, take the fall for her. 
The idea being that your girlfriend should be staying on the outside, taking care of things while you're incarcerated. And it's interesting. I mean, she ultimately ends up, I think, initially at Milan, Michigan, work farm, workhouse up there, and eventually at Alderson, um, which is another really infamous, um, famous prison workhouse for um, women um, in West Virginia. So, you know, she spends time incarcerated herself. Um, initially, you know, has relatively good feelings, relatively ideas of getting back with Harmon at some point in the future. Um, but I feel like that quickly sours in some of the different interviews that she's being transferred and things like that. Her, I guess, feelings of wanting to kind of continue the relationship post their incarceration doesn't seem as positive. Yeah, that was my other question was, did they did they reconvene? But yeah, not to my knowledge. Um, yeah. But I haven't traced her story related back to his. I mean, just up to that interview where she kind of said, like, I don't know, if I you know, some of the phrases, of, I don't know if I want to get back together with him or something that had soured. And I'm not blanking on the exact quote at the moment. I can probably track it down for you if you'd like. What an incredible story. And to get that background of like what a typical day was. It, was there a typical set amount of time that you would have been in solitary? Was it like a 30-day minimum? So the maximum, in theory, was up to 19 days. It really depended on what rule or regulation you violated and the larger kind of history of violations. So, you know, ultimately, it was the discretion of captain, lieutenant, or warden, or associate warden. You know, you basically had a small hearing, and then they decided, you know, if you demerited going into just segregation or the closed-celled, dark-celled, solitary confinement. Length of stay in that solitary confinement cells in the dark was up to 19 days. Various men who spent time down there claim they were held there for longer than 19 days, but given that lights and meal deliveries and the things in which you keep track of time are largely controlled by the prison officials, it's unclear to me you know, how well people have been able to keep track of time in that space. The correctional officers that we have oral histories from we've talked to said that they never left anyone down there longer than 19 days. That regulation was strictly adhered to. Various men claim they were there for longer. It's still unclear in the record of exactly which one of those folks is telling the truth. Did he ever make any reference to William and ever try to reach out to William or vice versa? I mean, both Whaley and Daynard were on the island together for a short time. <laughs> Daynard ended up with a longer sentence, but actually paroled out earlier. And this caused some animosity between them. He felt that as much as, you know, Daynard got the longer sentence that he was basically out the door, paroled back in society earlier, kind of, I guess, fed the feeling that he had that he was basically being unfairly targeted, unfairly treated. One of the authors and historians who's researched him, or I guess has interviewed him most extensively, David Ward, kind of talks about that Willie, it was really hard for him to recognize that his longer period of incarceration may have been because of his um, behavior and his kind of record of how many rules he broke, how much time he basically burned in terms of losing good time off his record with each rule violation and being really slow to regain that back. Because like I said, for the first 18 years of his 22, he pretty much was every little bit of time that he earned up to parole out earlier was basically, you know, stricken from his record when he broke the rules. So he constantly lost what good time that, what good favor he had earned. But by the same standard, you know, Whaley would have argued that, you know, he was being mistreated in the first place and that he was just trying to advocate for equal and fair treatment, you know, and that he wouldn't have had to break the rules if he got a fair shake in the first place and didn't get transferred to Alcatraz, which he felt he didn't belong at. So. What a story, Matthew. Thank you so much. That's such an, an interesting arc again. And and that idea that most people don't realize that even if you're sentenced to prison for life, chances are good that you will be released at some time. And so this is just such a testament to that redemption. People yeah. should be treated 
as if they are going to re-enter society and be provided some sort of humane treatment so that they can re-enter without extra criminality mindset built in and and uh, forced upon them. But and it's so fascinating to me because I mentioned earlier that the men in Alcatraz were deemed the worst of the worst. They were kind of labeled yeah. this by the Bureau of Prison System. And so many folks, when they hear that term, they think about America's most wanted. They think about particularly heinous crimes, murder, rape, um, assault. You know, they think about the most violent crimes. And it's so interesting because men came here for as little as, you know, $2.34 in postal theft. You know, that was their initial crime. They came here for counterfeiting $20 bills, you know. $340 and $20 bills. You know, and these were the initial crimes. I mean, these weren't like the most hardened, heinous criminals. They could be relatively minor crimes that landed you in federal prison. And then all that had to happen was that you did not adjust well to prison life. If you end up in this place where all your freedoms are denied to you, where things are incredibly regimented, and doing the time, so to speak, is not a thing that's easy to adjust to, and you step out of line, you, you know, get involved with the wrong crowd, you get into a fight because you're a new guy on the yard. Like anything that has the prison deem you as a troublemaker can get you sent to the rock. And it's so interesting because like the men who were sent here were deemed to be incorrigible, were deemed to be irredeemable, were deemed to be so-called hopeless troublemakers. But roughly 50% of the men who got out didn't recommit. The recidivism rate was about 50%. So essentially the very best judgment of the men who are irredeemable, who are incorrigible, who are doomed to basically keep causing trouble throughout their lives, had no hope of redemption, no hope of rehabilitation. You know, this is the echelon of the federal prison system. Very best minds are working on this. Their best guess at who's irredeemable is literally a coin flip. That's what the data holds out. You know, they might as well just have flipped a coin and been like, you're hopeless. You have a chance. You're hopeless. You have a chance. And the numbers probably would have worked out just about the same. I mean, even if like the men who are like Harmon, who were, you know, spent 18 years causing trouble, fighting the system, bucking every single rule and regulation that was put upon them, seven years in solitary confinement, like if someone like that can turn their life around, can get on the outside, can reconnect with the person, their victim of their crime, and, you know, spend it the rest of their days, um, you know, basically being a law-abiding citizen. It really makes me wonder, like, what does second chances mean? What does giving someone a second chance mean? What does it mean to give some folks, uh, you know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have those chances taken away? Like, how does that, if Alcatraz is seen as a place where there is no hope, how does that actually influence your behavior? Would Harmon Whaley have caused as much trouble if he got to stay at McNeil Island, which is a place that potentially had hope, had a better chance of parole? Would his behavior have basically gone so steeply downhill had he still been able to be visited by his mother or had he been able to serve the time the way that he wanted to? Or was it the nature of where he got sent and the lack of support that he found there that caused his behavior? I don't necessarily have the answers, but there's just so many questions to be asked his story brings up so many questions and great questions about what it means to be given a second chance, what it means to be given hope, to, you know, take the words of George Weyerhaeuser, you know, what does it mean to trust your hopes and not your fears when we're talking about those who've broken the laws in this country, those who are incarcerated? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love those stories of redemption. And I'm thinking about Harry Orchard, who is our probably most famous resident here at the site who assassinated a governor and the governor's family embraced Harry later on and adopted him and converted him into the Seventh-day Adventist. And it was just such a redemptive story for somebody who was so villainized and how society, you know, treats that and responds to that is both ways. You know, some are saying, look at this man who's changed and, and he's improved and others who are saying he's still a monster. He's irredeemable. Did Harmon ever 
attend church or find religion or anything like that? I don't have anything in his record and what I've read in my own research that points to any of that. The ability to attend church was largely a privilege that men had to earn. It was not one that was granted to them. So generally speaking, given his record, more than likely if he was religious, it's unlikely that he would have been able to go for the first 18 years. You know, what that does with someone's religiosity, if you're not able to attend, and it's just a larger question, he potentially could have gone in the, I guess, last, what would it be, five years of his incarceration, thereabouts, four or five years. And, you know, some men attended, and I'd have to go back and check the roles more specifically, just to like get out of the cell house, have something to do. Some men attended because they actually were religious. Um, I imagine it's very similar to yours, where it's like, it's always... Just because someone is on the rolls of having sat through, you know, chapel doesn't necessarily mean that they were a practicing member of that faith. There are other motivators. So I've yet to see anything that points to him as being a practicing member of the faith. But, you know, there could easily be documents that um, the researchers that I've read, the historians that I've read, and the things that I've kind of dug into just chose not to mention. Interesting. Wow. What a story. Now, working at Alcatraz, is this your favorite story or is there one that you are, it's just your favorite thing to talk about? Oh, man, it is so tough to choose. There are so many amazing stories on the island. I think one of the ones that I've been doing a lot of research around of late and um, really just diving deep into is a series of men from Baker Street. So Baker Street's a street in San Francisco. Military police basically become aware of two houses. It's basically one block next to the military base um, over in the city of San Francisco in 1918. And they basically follow a man who's impersonating a soldier back to these houses and ultimately put the houses under surveillance. Um, They watch them for a few weeks, watch men come and go, eventually planting an informant inside these two apartments, these two flats, and they eventually gather enough evidence to contact the San Francisco Moral Squad and stage a raid. They basically raid the houses, arrest everyone within. All the men found in the two flats are detained for the next 12 days. They force them to testify against one another, return over correspondences, address books, and ultimately build out a list of names of men all walks of life all across San Francisco. And the police basically go out, both military police and the San Francisco PD, um, go out and arrest about 30 folks all across San Francisco. 25 civilians, six soldiers. Civilians land in city and county jail. The soldiers land out in Alcatraz. And they spend about five months on the island in one of the five by nine foot cells, military prison at the time, awaiting their courts martial. Um, they get a chance to go before Judge Advocate General in that courts martial. And ultimately, all six of those men are found guilty of various charges related to the violations of the 96 Article of War. And specifically, the main reason that they were seen as violated in the 96 Article of War is because they were men who loved other men. They broke no other laws, broke no other rules or regulations, did nothing else aside from who they loved and how they expressed that love. Um, I've gone through the whole men's military records, their whole court-martial transcripts. There was nothing else that they did besides being at this house and consensual acts they engaged with and other individuals, particularly civilians, at these two flats and elsewhere in the city um, that came up in their testimonies. Four of the men are sent up to McNeil Island up in Seattle, same place that Harmon Whaley was. They spend three to 10 years hard labor up there. One of them is sentenced to two years on Alcatraz. And the only officer in the group gets set free after his initial five months. He has a, he could afford his own lawyer, so he had a better representation. But he's still dishonorably discharged, still forfeits all of his pay, and still suffers a lot of social consequences. Because all of these men, their stories were heavily covered in the papers. You know, every single paper in the city was talking about the Baker Street scandal or the Baker Street vice scandal or the men of Baker Street. They were all covering this, even the Italian papers. I mean, like your Italian grandma who doesn't even speak English, like who's down the street from you, like knew about this. So like everyone suddenly knew 
who you were, you were forcibly outed at a time when it was not necessarily safe to be a man who loved other men in San Francisco. The term gay or homosexual weren't yet in the parlance. They used the term temperamental, queer was in use a little bit back then. But, you know, these men basically were all punished, all had their freedom taken away from them merely because of who they loved, how they expressed that love. They talk about no incidentity from a young age in their testimonies. They talk about, you know, realizing as they met other men like them that it was not so criminal or repulsive a thing after all. And, you know, they're saying this from a courtroom of people who are all viewing them as criminals and as repulsive. So it's just such a heartbreaking story when folks associate Alcatraz as a place that held the worst of the worst, just diving a little bit deeper into the record and being like, you know, even what the worst is, is something that is a product of society and a product of the times. And so often it's so easy to basically think of what we deem to be the worst today and basically imprint our ideas of the past. But when you start to look actually in the record, you start to see the, how much more nuanced that label is. That there were men incarcerated for their sexuality, men were incarcerated for their politics, um, men were incarcerated for relatively petty thefts, or in some cases a handshake with the wrong person. Um, men were incarcerated for kidnapping, you know, bank robbery, like it runs the full gamut. But it's like, you know, you need to kind of break those things down and get beyond the labels, get beyond the surface level understandings of the place. And it's what I love about Alcatraz and I love about the history. You know, it's just that there's so much more there beyond just Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly and Robert Stroud, the Birdman. There's so much more than what Hollywood hasn't covered. Yeah. And it's such an incredible resource of information about these these people. That's something that I'm always fascinated by is how much national and even world history I can tie into the people that came here. And directly link them to like, oh, he served in the Boer War. He was in World War One. He served in this infantry unit before returning home, shell shocked, and you know, going down this avenue. It's just, it's incredible the amount of connections that we can make and the resources. And I, that's what another thing I wanted to ask you about is like, what sort of resources do you have to reference, like prison files, things like that. So, like I said, there's been rangers out on Alcatraz for 50 years now, you know, so much of the work that I've done is from that 50 years of rangers, of historians, of interpreters who've been working on the island, who've been diving deep in the stacks. We're lucky that many of the federal penitentiary records went from Alcatraz to the National Archives. They actually are here in San Francisco, so only just a short drive away. Now in San Bruno, because they moved out of the city proper, just south of us. But we've spent a long time in the stacks actually pulling the direct files of those you know, so getting into the actual National Archives. The military data is a little bit trickier to dig into. Unfortunately, a lot of that military prison records stayed on the island when it transferred to the Bureau of Prisons. Um, some of the records apparently were just tossed by the Bureau of Prisons one day. Some of it made its way back to the National Archives in different places. So it's a lot deeper dive of being like, which National Archives branch has this military records and who do I need to contact? And, you know, so more and more researchers over the years are kind of diving deeper into some of those eras. We've been really lucky enough that the prison closed down so close to when it became a national park site that we were able to capture so much in terms of oral histories. Rangers in the 1970s, and I was talking to someone on their tour, were literally talking on their tour and they were telling stories. And then a person on their tour, a man would speak up and say like, that's not right. And they'd be like, what do you mean? That's not right. I did the homework on this. What do you mean? And they're like, no, I was here. You're telling the story wrong. And men would come out of the crowd and talk about that they were incarcerated there, talk about they were a guard there, you know, talk about they grew up on the island. And, you know, we captured so much of these stories. And once we started kind of reaching out to these networks, I mean, Harmon Whaley talks about how in the later years, you know, he's talking to David Ward, the researcher reached out to a bunch of men formerly incarcerated in Alcatraz, wrote one of the books on it. And he talks about he gets in touch with other men who are formerly incarcerated and they would just get together on occasion and 
cut up the rock is the term that they used. So there was a network of these men. And once we started getting in touch with one or two, we got in touch with others and we were able to capture a myriad of oral histories. The audio tour on the island is largely cut together. It's purely narrated by former guards, formerly incarcerated men. They tell their own stories in their own words. And we were just so lucky to be able to capture that. Same with the occupation. There's still many of the folks who are out here for the occupation who tell us their stories and their words. We're able to capture all of that. And I've worked at many different national park sites and it's so interesting to like read a story of a lighthouse keeper or of a member of the life-saving service and be like, oh man, I wish that I could talk to them. I wish that like a ranger could interview them. But on Alcatraz, like I still get to talk to a few of them that are still alive. There's less and less all the time. But my colleagues also got to talk to so many more over the years and they got to ask those questions that of things that aren't recorded, that aren't in the record and, you know, hear it from literally the person that lived it themselves. And there's always a degree of as folks' biases over the years, what they think looking back, how things change 50, 10, 15, 20 years on. You know, everyone is an unreliable narrator at the end of the day, but it just makes for a more complete picture when you're putting together all those puzzle pieces. We just have a really rich resource of oral histories, of primary documents to draw upon. And with digitization, with more stuff coming out from the archives these days, more researchers being interested in this stuff, more folks getting their degrees in history, like new stuff comes up all the time. I think all of us can speak to the passion that we have for the work that we're doing at our various sites. So I just want to ask, like, what's your favorite part about your job? Like, what do you love doing the most, whether it's the physical, you know, whether I mean that, like, physically, you love to get in the archives, or like, you love to give to it, like, what is your favorite thing about it? And what do you wish people understood better? I think that my favorite part about the job is just, I mean, there's so many parts, but it's just like, I'm amazed every single day that I get paid to do what I do, whether it's digging deep into the stacks and like reading about obscure historical research. You know, it's like you talk about these weird connections to world events. Like there's times I'm like, I come across this reference and then I come across to like a German consulate on Alcatraz. And that leads to a really weird political kerfuffle that happened with India back in like the turn of the century. And I'm like, it's such obscure history that I have no reason to ever look up, ever learn about the Hollywood's not going to cover on it. And I'm down this rabbit hole. So like, and then I come back up and I'm like, I get paid to do this. And like, you know, I'm out with the visitors. I'm talking to folks. And I look out at the view. I watch the sunset on the island. You know, you get to see peregrine falcons diving and eating animals. Like there's feathers falling from the guard towers of peregrines, like eating its dinner. You get to see flowers that are in bloom year round. Visitors coming from all over the world. There's endlessly fascinating the questions. You know, there's just, there's always something going on. And it's just a blast. And every single step of the way, like I'm racking the cell doors. I'm talking to visitors. I'm just enjoying the sunset. And it's like, I'm getting paid to do this. Like, it's just, it feels like a dream so many days. And in terms of what I want folks to know better about Alcatraz, I just really want folks to, you know, really consider the island in a more broad sense. So much of Hollywood's portrayal of Alcatraz is that these men were the worst of the worst. They were irredeemable. They were hopeless. They were folks who you would never want to sit down and chat with and have a cup of coffee with and like, you know, consider your friend and like, I can't say that there was no one there that was terrible. Like, I'm not going to say that, but I think that there's much more complex stories. They were human beings, you know, and that comes with all the complexity that every single human beings have. And the vast majority, at least 50% of those men who paroled out of this place, you know, over 750 men never reoffended. They went about their lives. They were American citizens. They were literally potentially your neighbor, depending on your age, just down the street, just going about their lives, going about their daily life, you know. Some of them never told their friends and family they were ever on Alcatraz because of the mark that that carried. Literally, the early letters they sent out from the place, like they had a 
complaint that went up all the way to the director of Bureau of Prisons about not wanting to have their mail stamped with an Alcatraz cancellation stamp because the sending mail to a small town and having it stamped Alcatraz, that's where it came from, your family would basically get snubbed by the whole community. And these men were like, I can't write a letter home because they know it's coming from Alcatraz. So, you know, many of them kept this part of their life very dark, didn't want to talk about it. They've been so gracious in terms of coming back and sharing that story with the Park Service. And in some cases, some of them found a guest authors and shared their stories with tens of thousands of visitors, not hundreds of thousands. You know, men like Jim Quillen, Bill Baker, Bob Luke were all gracious enough to basically come back to this island and tell visitors their stories. Um, prior to them passing, Bill still comes out on occasion, should be coming back to the island at some point soon. So, I mean, you know, there's just so much more to these individuals. You know, they're complex human beings with all that means. And there's just so much more to the island beyond Hollywood's portrayal of it of a place of irredeemable men. So I just really want folks to, you know, broaden their understanding of Alcatraz, the men who are here as political prisoners, the Native Americans who are here as part of this larger history of indigenous resistance. There's just so much to a common humanity that we all share, regardless of what sides of the bars the individuals in Alcatraz were. We all share that common humanity. And I just want folks to really think about the complexities of incarceration in this country. I mean, Alcatraz is really a great place to do that, as I'm sure Idaho State is. So many folks, you know, coming to Alcatraz tell me this is the first time they've ever set foot in a prison. And um, I think it was Nelson Mandela who once said that no one can truly know a nation until one has been inside its jails. A nation should not be judged by how it treats its highest citizens, but its lowest ones. And I think it's worth everyone's time to visit a prison, whether it's a prison museum or a working prison. And if not doing that, like, read some news. Think about how a nation is treating some of its lowest citizens. You know, pay attention to what's going on behind bars, because as Mandela said, that speaks so much to the testament and the nature of a country. If this country wants to really achieve all that its ideals that it really sets forth in so many documents, it really needs to be paying attention to all of its citizens, regardless of what sizes of the bars they end up on. Everything you just said resonates with our whole vision and mission at our site. And I just, I'm so happy to to have this connection with you, to have the same, you know, shared vision. And I really appreciate all of your time. And I look forward to seeing more stories and, and this rabbit hole you were just telling us about, about this Baker Street <laughs> Is that going to turn into an exhibition or anything at Alcatraz? Currently, we have a small exhibit around it. There's a web page on our website about it. If you just like search for the men of Baker Street, you can find, you know, more of their story on that. You know, it's a story that I'm definitely telling a lot of folks that visitors come out to the island. It may eventually be part of our larger um, big lockup exhibit. So it may eventually get kind of some inclusion in there, um, but that's still kind of in the works at the moment. So. Excellent. How can people find more about you and your work? Yeah, so highly recommend that folks check out our website, National Park Service, so nps.gov and slash ALCA, the first four letters of Alcatraz, A-L-C-A, so nps.gov slash A-L-C-A. That's our website. We have a presence on social media. You can come check out our Facebook page. You know, you can email us directly at the park if you have questions. You can reach out by phone. You know, we're always happy to help folks with whatever their curiosities may be. Um, maybe a little bit slow in getting back to you just because of all the other business that we talked about, but we'll get back to you at some point, I'm sure. And yeah, just come out and visit. You know, we are in the middle of the San Francisco Bay. There's lots of tickets, as we just mentioned, <laughs> and there's never a bad time to come out and see the island. So if you ever find yourself in San Francisco, highly encourage folks to actually come out and see it in the flesh. Absolutely. 100%. I, I think I spent eight hours there one day and my wife had to drag me onto the ferry or else I was going to stay. So it's fascinating. If you're listening to this podcast and, and you haven't been to Alcatraz, 
book a ticket to San Francisco <laughs> and you should go because it's it's a really uh, fascinating site and very well done. Every ranger that I spoke with just have the same you know passion that you have that you've shared with us today. So, well, Matt, we have this kind of tradition here. If I were to say do your own time, how would you respond to that? For me, do your own time to some degree just means like, you know, it's so much of life, you know, there's this piece that these men talk about, you know, being successful at doing time, not being successful, you know, in some ways, even like Harmon's story, like, it's figuring out how to get by in life, it's figuring out how to, you know, make things happen, um, how to make the best of the circumstances that you're in, you know, we all figure that out at different points in life. So many days, it's like one of my colleagues talks about how, you know, he was a ranger out here for 30 years, and he talks about how he spent more time on this island than the longest men, longer than Carpus, longer than Whaley. You know, and in so many ways, we are all moving through life through various trials and tribulations, and it's just how you face those, how you make the most of the circumstances that you're in. Harmon Whaley ultimately faced a lot of trials and tribulations, um, so many situations that he did not want to be in, um, so much that he didn't really have much choice in the matter uh, because of how kind of the various turns in life took him. But ultimately, you know, with some time, he was able to kind of figure things out, and he was able to kind of find his way through. So, yeah. Yeah. Do your own time, find your way through. I like that. All right, everybody. Well, thank you again. We have to have you back on to talk about some of these other topics that we've mentioned previously in the podcast. Yeah, definitely. would love to come back again and, you know, definitely potentially can get one of our other great colleagues out here too. Um, see if we can figure out another story that overlaps with and get some different voices as well. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Do your own time. Do your own number. And I will talk to you next week. And always remember, trust your hopes and not your fears. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.